this morning. Set my tab there. Hey, so for those of you that don't know me, my name is Joe. I'm the missions pastor here at LCF. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and open God's Word this morning. It's always fun for me uh, to be up here when they slip up and set me on the schedule, and I get to be up here and open God's Word with you guys, so I'm excited to do that. Uh, when Tim told me that I had free reign to talk about whatever I wanted to this morning, I thought he was a little nuts. Uh, but now that I know what I'm going to try to lead us in today, I really think he's nuts. But again, I saw him bungee jump off of a bridge last week, so uh, he is nuts. But that's our lead pastor, and we love him so much. Uh, we're going to do some things this morning that are pretty out of the ordinary and non-typical for LCF. Uh, normally, we expositorily preach through a book of the Bible exegetically, verse by verse, uh, we're going to kind of do that this morning, but we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, however, I do believe that it's going to lead us into a place that's going to bless all of us, uh, Lord willing. So, to start our time together, I have two questions that I would like for us to answer. All right? Show of hands, how many people have ever been to a foreign country or a place that is almost otherworldly in its culture or your experience within it? Or at least seen it on TV or read about it in a book or something. <laughs> okay, pretty much everybody. All right, great. So also, though, a show of hands, how many people have ever experienced or are currently experiencing extreme grief or disappointment or mourning or anxiety or hurt or pain or fear or depression or anything like that? Most everybody. If you haven't, I'm sure you know someone that has. So the first question was in regards to where we're going to go today. So my plan for this morning is to take you somewhere that's totally foreign to you and me. We need to completely erase our understanding of this world, and we need to see the world through the eyes of a first century Judeo-Christian and even further back in ancient Israelite. Our worldviews are so distorted by the culture that we grow up in, and our understanding of this world is almost entirely reliant upon our experiences and what we learn within said culture. We live in a massively materialistic worldview society. If you remember the last time I was up here, which was early November, I was up here with Dr. J.P. Moreland, and we were discussing on how materialism and scientism uh, affect how we see and understand reality. And this is true, and it's just because markers of a human, uh, but we're going to need to deconstruct that today in order to fully grasp where we're going to end, which I'll describe in a moment. The second question is why we're going to go there today. So for me personally, I raised my hand because I have experienced those things in my life. Many of you close to me know that through November and severely in the month of December, for the first time in my life, I struggled uh, with severe anxiety and depression and panic attacks. And thank you, Bulware family, for walking with me through that. I appreciate you very much. I felt alone, alone and abandoned. I felt fearful and a host of untrue and unhelpful dark thoughts. And this morning, I want to give those of you who are going through those dark places, wherever they may be, a ray of hope a new outlook, and ultimately a new view of our Savior, King Jesus, and the cross which he bore. 
So we're going to deconstruct our whole section of our reality and build it back up together and see the full picture of the cross so that you can know the cosmic and powerful truth of Christ and his work in the midst of any of your suffering. So that's our goal today, to make a really big deal out of Jesus and that no matter what, even when it seems like God is not on his throne, he reigns. You can trust and rest in the power of this cosmic conquering king. So to start, we're going to watch a clip from a children's movie, sort of. It's from the mind of C.S. Lewis uh, called The Chronicles of Narnia. So I just want you to watch it, think about it, and it's going to make some, it's going to make some real sense in the end. So watch this clip with me. So I want this to be in your mind, this clip, the images that are clearly evident as you watch it, and remember it as we walk through our study this morning. Now you have slips in your bulletin that'll help you track the five blocks that we're going to hit. Uh, I provided these because we're going to get pretty academic today, kind of a deep dive, so I didn't want to lose anyone, and I want you to be able to see where we're going. And keep this, these images in your head, and... Um, 
the sheets will also help you stay in line with where we're going to go. Okay, so our passage for this morning, Matthew 27, verses 27 through 50. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew 27 if you haven't already. And I'm going to read for you, starting in verse 27, down to verse 50, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. This is the word of our Lord. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put on his clothes and led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it after three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the two criminals on each side of him taunted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. In verse 50, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are good, Lord. We admonish you as such this morning. God, through your living and active word, I pray that you reshape our minds and our hearts to be obedient to you, to learn about your glory, and that it shines in our life, Lord. God, I pray for open hearts and ears and minds this morning, God, that every syllable that comes off of my lips, that is truth, that is from you, falls on those with openness and with hearing. Lord, and anything that I say that is not from you falls on deaf ears, Lord. God, would you be with us in our time in your scriptures? Would we learn about your vastness and your glory? And we will learn about you, our King, Jesus, in your name, amen. Amen. Now, so much happens, right, in these few short verses. Our God, our Savior, our friend, 
Jesus is ridiculed, maligned, he's beaten, he's spat upon. It's the hideous betrayal of the creator of the world. I pray that when we read that, they're not just things that we've heard a thousand times over again, and very well they might be, but I pray that with each reading, something new is opened up to you, some new reality in your life, some new truth that you can take away and apply to who you are. But as many times as we have heard that, I still think that there are some things that we inevitably miss. So, Psalm 22, okay, is a corollary Old Testament passage to Matthew 27. Now, many of you know that there is overlap after overlap after overlap through these two chapters, this prophetic messianic chapter in Psalm 22 and the one of our Lord at the cross in Psalm, or Matthew 27. So in order to display some of that correlation, we're going to list several of these up on the screen. I'm not going to say the references, but you'll see them up there. They divide his clothes among themselves by casting lots. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Those who passed by reviled him, shaking their heads. In the same way, also the chief priests among them, the scribes and the elders, were mocking him. All who see me mock me. They, they open their wide their lips. They sneer and shake their heads. People look at me and stare. The agony that we see on the cross of Jesus refusing the drink they were giving him, I, I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And in the verse... That is our message title today, verbatim in both chapters. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Strong correlation. Both of these chapters strongly correlated in what's happening at the cross. However, I do think there are some connections that are not so prevalent to us. Matthew 27, 45, darkness came over the entire land. Psalm 22, 12 and 13. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. And this is where our journey is going to begin together. What does it mean, many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me? What was really going on at the cross that day? So, in order to understand that, we need to understand what Bashan meant to an ancient Israelite and what the bulls of Bashan are. So, in the Old Testament, here's where we're going we're gonna to dive in, okay? In the Old Testament, the area of Bashan was known as the place of evil. Everything about Bashan was evil. It was seen as evil. It was against God's plan and against God's people. Now, King Og, in Deuteronomy 3... He reigned over this area of Bashan, and he was a descendant of the Nephilim and the Rephaim from Genesis 6, spiritual beings that hated God's plan and turned their backs against him and came to earth. You can read about this, see also Jude, verses 6 and 7. Now there was a god whose name is Marduk, and you can read about him all over the Old Testament. He's in several different places, but if you would like, see also Jeremiah 51 who Marduk in ancient Near Eastern writings and Ugaritic texts had strong ties to Og, this king that we're talking about. In fact, many evil kings all throughout Scripture had the root of their name as Maraduk, 
the Hebrew root word, the same as Marduk. Strong ties all these evil kings in this evil area with evil gods. Okay? See also 2 Kings 20, 2 Kings 25, Isaiah 39, if you would like to see some of those names. Now the word Bashan has two literal meanings in the Hebrew. Okay, first, you can check Strong's Hebrew concordance on this. I forget the reference, but I think it's 1316 or 1412. The first meaning is an area east-northeast of Lake Galilee, which is the area of Bashan. The second literal meaning is serpent. So to the area of the north, this area of Bashan was quite literally recognized as the area of the serpent. Now what does that remind us of? In Genesis 3, obviously. So quite literally, to an ancient Israelite, Bashan was known as the gates of hell. As Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser puts it, if you wanted to conjure up images of demonic and death, you'd refer to Bashan. So we see that Bashan is this evil place, decrepit in every way and against and opposed to God. Archaeologists today are still finding uh, shrines and devotional relics to other gods throughout this entire area. The place was evil. So what about these bulls of Bashan? Amos 4.1 and Psalm 82 are going to tell us a little bit about that. So Psalm, or Amos 4. Okay, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 for you. Amos 4.1. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppose the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, has sworn by His holiness, Look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you, with fish hooks. Now this passage has dual meaning. First, it's directly quoting, uh, these are directly talking about these quote-unquote cows of Bashan, like it mentions, which are universally agreed in the scholarly level that they are upper-class women of northern Israel that were idolaters that worshipped golden calves of Bashan. Think in your mind, Exodus in the golden calf, right? However, it's also talking about these evil spiritual beings, these spiritual deities, if you will, behind said golden images and idols. There are two crimes in view from both of these that we can read about. Oppressing the poor, right, in verse 1, and crushing the needy. Now, the exact same Hebrew words and exact same phrasing is in the Hebrew in Psalm 82 in regards to evil spiritual beings who are opposed to God and His plan and His people. So, if we read Psalm 82, I'm going to read that for you. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, provide justice for the needy and the fatherless, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, rescue the poor and the needy? Same exact words from Amos 4.1. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, this is our Lord God. I said, you are gods. All You are all sons of the Most High. I created you this way. However, you will die like humans. 
and fall like any other ruler. So here it is in verse 4 of Psalm 82. The exact same phrasing, the exact same wording. And this passage is obviously speaking about evil deities, evil spiritual beings. I don't have time to go down the trail that leads us to know all that and talk, explain that from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6 to Genesis 11 to Deuteronomy 3 and Deuteronomy 32 and how we construct that worldview of an ancient Near Eastern person, an ancient Israelite. However, the passage does use the word gods because quite literally to an ancient Near Eastern person, it means gods. In the Hebrew, it's Elohim. It says that each time that you see the word uh, gods in verse 1 and in verse 6, it uses the word Elohim, which in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, God. So our translation of the word God is kind of short-sighted, if you will. We know God as Yahweh. He is the one true monotheistic reign ruler over all things, creator of everything. However, there's a plethora of spiritual beings that anyone in biblical times knew about. Okay? And they also called them Elohim, strong spiritual beings. Biblical writers were well aware of the spiritual powers that be and the power that they wield. Now remember, even in the New Testament, Paul, right, a Jew, who knew the scriptures by heart, what does he warn us of in Ephesians 6? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens. There's beings that are opposed to God, opposed to you, opposed to me, which leads us to what's really been going on all through scripture. There's a cosmic holy war happening that many times I read out of scripture instead of reading into my life. Remember our materialistic worldview, right? We don't see things that way many times. We come up with any kind of excuse to get around that there are beings opposed to me and opposed to God. We may say we believe it, but many times we forget that we do. From the time of the Hash. The serpent in Genesis 3 to the fallen angels in Genesis 6, the misguidance of the peoples in Deuteronomy 32, the demons that Jesus expels in the New Testament and his encounter with the devil in the wilderness in Matthew 4. There is a war going on and there are beings gunning for Yahweh's throne. All through the Old Testament, there is a theological war happening. And this war only becomes supercharged when Jesus comes onto the scene. From the dawn of rebellion, these beings have been opposed to God against his plans and against you and against me. Plotting and scheming to derail the plans of God. Plotting and scheming to devour the people of God. And when Jesus walked this earth, plotting and scheming on how to stop his plan whatever that was, for they did not know the plan. You see, the devil and the rulers of darkness and demons, they are not omniscient. They do not know all things. They are not omnipotent. They cannot do all things. They are not omnipresent. They are bound by space and time like every other created creature. They are, however, extremely powerful supernatural beings that have been at their ploy for millennia on end. What better way to stop this Jesus and his plan than by killing him? 
I mean, the demons themselves in Mark chapter 5 called Jesus son of the most high God. They knew him, but they didn't know his plan. So, back to our text. I hope we've deconstructed reality just a little bit for us this morning. There's more to this life than what we see, right? There's more to your experience than what you feel physically and what you feel and see materially. Think about Job's life, right? He had no idea the cosmic things that were happening that plunged his life into the areas that it would go. There's spiritual reality all around us. Now, I'm going to reread something that I uh, just kind of rewrote to mix Matthew 27 with Psalm 22 together so that we can see this picture, this overlap, if you will, of what is really happening at the cross. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They knelt down before him and mocked him. All who see me mock me. They opened their lips. They shake their heads. They spat on him, stripped him, and mocked him. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. He refused to drink. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My strength is dry. They crucified him. From noon until three, darkness came over the whole land. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see? We need to see this picture of what's really going on here. Jesus' image bearers in the physical realm, all around him, mocking him, spitting on him, snarling at him and taunting him. Jesus' image bearers in the, in the spiritual realm, all around him, snarling at him, spitting on him, taunting him, and mocking him. Rejected by every single being that he had ever created, all on top of taking on the full and total complete wrath of God. In Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit, and the lights went out. And at the moment of his death, evil erupts. Remember the clip from Narnia. Aslan, the king, the depiction of Jesus. Encircled by all of those that opposed him. All of those ghastly ghouls and disgusting creatures. They all erupt. And what does the witch say? You're giving your life and saving no one. So much for love. This is the cross. This is what happened. Please look at it. This is the reality of what happened 2,000 years ago on a dry piece of land in the Middle East. This is the event that changed the entire course of human history. And evil had thought that they had won. We did it. This is our kingdom now. 
right? The witch, we will reign forever. But you see, they didn't know the plan. Do not be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected. And when evil thought that it was winning, the king of life was on the move. On the cross alone, yes. Alone in the tomb, yes. But with an ironclad dedication to redeeming creation and redeeming humanity and those that turn their gaze towards him. Colossians 2.15 tells us he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. What evil took as their victory was really their public defeat, their disgrace. Their shame-filled moment was when they encircled the cross and cheered. This is your cosmic conquering king. Lord over the spiritual and over the physical. Lord over heaven and over earth. Why was he forced to scream in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that those who call on his name will never have to. Life circumstances may make us feel that way at times. We may ask that question to ourselves. We may pray that question in some imprecatory type prayers that we lift up. But because of Christ's work, they are not valid questions. He has not forsaken you. Your feelings may be burdened and broken. And those are real feelings. But it does not change the eternal truth that Christ is King. And He reigns and is in control. And He is working out all things for the good of those that love Him, even when it doesn't feel that way. You may feel like God has pushed you away, that faulty worldview that was stated by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders in Matthew 27, 41, when they said, He trusts in God, let God deliver Him now, if He desires Him. Jesus had perfect trust in the Father. God did deliver him. And the Father eternally desired his Son. And you, you can trust in God. He will deliver you. And he does desire you. Now I know that there's a lot of hurt in this room this morning. There are several instances going on throughout this congregation right now where there is a lot of pain. And I want to tell you, please listen, our pastoral staff, our staff as a whole, we hear you and we see you and we pray for you and we are with you. I do not say this flippantly, but with reverence and respect. If there has been a death in your family, if there is illnesses or cancers within yourself or someone you love, a dissolving of your marriage, kids that seem out of control or aren't walking with the Lord, if you're battling with anxiety or depression, please hear me. Jesus is Lord over all of those things. He is King 
over all of those things. You don't need to worry if you are found in Christ about the bulls of Bashan or the enemies that are encircling you. You can look to the cross and proclaim righteousness in the king. Think on Jesus, not on your woes. For even when it seems like God is not on his throne, he reigns. And you can trust and rest in the power of the cosmic conquering king. For not only did he become abandoned by all so that you wouldn't have to, Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He made a public mockery over the principalities of darkness in this world and in your life. And he bore your sin that you might be saved by his name. He endured the cross and it was his joy. Surrounded by all of those beings, he delighted in the will of the Father. He knew that he would be forsaken and he did it anyway. And you can have relationship with this king that conquers all. And for in his return, he promises, Revelation 21, that he will wipe every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away and the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. And that is who we worship. That is our Jesus the conqueror of all, the king of all. So bring your worries, bring your fears, your sin, your mourning, your anxiety, your grief, your depression, your marriage, your kids, your life. Bring yourself before the cross of this loving and righteous king. For he was forsaken that you may never be. We're going to leave the lights down for worship today, if you need to cry out to this king, do it. If you need to sit in your chair and cry before the Lord, do it. If you would like prayer over anything in your life, there are people in the back over here that would love to pray for you, and I am absolutely sure that someone right next to you would love to pray for you as well. If you need to give your heart and soul to this king and you never have before, talk to someone near you. Find a pastor on staff. Find me after services. Jesus is good. And he reigns over all. And that's worthy of our praise. So let us praise our Lord. What I want you to see is two things to take away this morning. One, there is spiritual battle going on around you. Recognize it. Don't be so materialistically minded. Second, though, this cross represents your freedom. You have power over those things, over your mourning, over your grieving, over your sin, over your anxiety, over your depression, over all the things that you are currently feeling. Jesus commands your destiny. He is your king. He is the triumphant one that you can rest in and know. So take those things, apply them to your life this week. Not only that, those are great truths, are they not? Tell them to somebody this week. Expand the kingdom of our God and our great and mighty King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. We'll see you guys next week.